Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Well, hello there. How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode that's a compilation of the board games that we've been playing recently. And we are proud to announce a new member to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast, Foster the Meeple. And contributing on this episode are Of Dice and Men, Dice and Dragons, Definitely a Board Game Podcast. Foster the Meeple, The Tabletop Bellhop, The Meeple Dungeon, Friday Night Games, and Cardboard Conjecture. And remember to check out the show notes for the links to all of the content from the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, Chad here from Dyson Men, the bi-weekly-ish podcast where we talk about board games, the people who play them, and the culture surrounding the hobby. I literally just finished putting Destinies back in the box, having played a few scenarios in solo and versus mode, and I have thoughts I'd like to share. Destinies is a game produced by Lucky Duck Games, the same people who've produced Chronicles of Crime and Kingdom Rush Rift in Time, and designed by Michael Golibowski and Philip Milensky. Players take the role of various citizens in the middle of some old world crisis. Perhaps there's a wolf stalking the town, or rats have made off with your village's stockpiles right before winter, or a plague is ravaging the castle. From a short intro, each player sets off with their own set of destinies in mind, walking through the countryside, interacting with locations and people, until they find themselves in a final showdown of sorts to attempt to win the game. Destinies is a narrative adventure board game, which is a genre I particularly enjoy. I have all of the Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition stuff, 7th Continent, This War of Mine, and I can't wait to get my hands on Sleeping Gods. So Destinies should be right up my alley, you'd think. Unfortunately, after a few plays, I can say that doesn't seem to be the case. Destinies shares a lot of the same DNA with these games, but for some reason it just doesn't hit the right notes while we play. First off, the game is very heavily app-integrated. There's a shared map with some Salon minis on it, think the same scale as 7th Continent, and each player has their own player board to keep track of their skills, but a large majority of the game is played in the application. I don't want to come across as one of those cardboard purists. I do quite enjoy a lot of app-based games, the aforementioned Mansions of Madness being one of them. The problem with Destinies is most of the stuff in front of you is just a placeholder that doesn't really provide a lot of value. Sure, you need to know where you are on the map, but there's no real visual benefit to having it on the table. In Mansions of Madness, for example, you can quickly see who's in range, which monsters are about to chase you down, where other players are that may be able to help you out, what rooms are on fire, etc. In Destinies, the thing that you see on the table is almost exactly what's in the app, so there's not really any sense of things needing to be there. The other service the app provides is Lucky Duck's trademark QR code interaction system. If you've played Chronicles of Crime, you'll be familiar with the concept, where the app acts as a bridge between the NPC you're interacting with 
and things you may have collected in the game. With Chronicles of Crime, it represents an impressive catalog of interactions between dozens of different cards, creating a really interesting experience. With Destinies, it works as a shortcut from having to click Use My Hatchet. But it's actually not a shortcut at all, since you have to fire up the camera on your device, focus on the QR code you want to scan, and then click on the screen anyway. The interaction we saw in the earlier Chronicle of Crime games doesn't seem to provide the same value in Destinies, mostly because there's only 1-5 to five things you can interact with as a player at any given time. It doesn't feel as impressive when the app asks you to scan one of the two things it gave you a turn earlier. Speaking of the map, although it's quite beautifully illustrated, it really doesn't give you the same sense of exploration as something like Seventh Continent does. It functions much closer to Mansions of Madness, where it serves as a placeholder for character position and points of interest, but it does so at the Seventh Continent I can see an entire town square in one card type of scale. Seventh Continent's map scale works because it still has interesting things on the map tiles. You can find hidden numbers, certain plants, animal tracks, see what resources are available, figure out what the terrain might be like on the next tile. In Destinies, there's nothing but a pretty picture, or a grayed out one if you haven't explored it yet, and that's it. Even worse, they didn't put the scenario map tiles together at all. I could understand if the map had some sort of hidden value to it, but because it does little more than hold the point of interest tokens, there's really no benefit to seeing a map tile early, so mixing in the scenario's location in a stack of 65 other map cards does little more than add time to the game. Let's talk about those point of interest tokens. When you reveal a map tile, the app instructs you to put down some tokens to indicate locations you can interact with. Sometimes, however, it'll ask you to put one of the 26 very small minis on the board to indicate a specific character you can talk to. These very small minis are the same color and size as your player pawns, and in fact are used interchangeably between scenarios since you don't play the same character each time. If there were some sort of difference in gameplay between the POI tokens and the minis on the board I'd understand, but they're interacted with the exact same way. Their only practical purpose is to see if you remember which minutely detailed figure is yours when it's your turn. I will say that Destinies makes good use of a tactic that was earlier employed by Tainted Grail, where the map is dynamic and can change over the course of the game and through player decisions. This is a welcome feature copied from other narrative map games, giving life to an otherwise stale mosaic of cards, and I appreciated how Destinies uses the map as a sort of game timer showing how the storyline and the world continues despite what you may be doing as a player. Finally, like most narrative board games, there's the concept of skill checks. Just like an RPG, Destinies asks you to roll dice to resolve your skill checks, using a pretty neat character stat system to help. Your character has three stats, intelligence, dexterity, and power, all of which have spots 1 to 12 on them. But it's not just an individual number that you use to resolve your skill checks. Any stat can have any number of little wooden discs on your dual-layered player board in any of those number columns. When you roll to resolve, you check the number you roll against against those wood discs for each one at or below the result you get a success. I found this new way to manage character stats quite interesting, particularly because as you play the game you're often asked to move those discs around, both positively and negatively, giving players an opportunity to manipulate the odds. But it's not the skill checks that bother me about destinies, simple as they are. I think it's the interaction system. When you interact with a location or NPC, you're often given a list of choices to choose from. The choices that require specific skill tests are usually indicated. My only note here is that it's not really a choice, because you can often choose all of the options. Destinies lets players interact with every choice on their turn, unless a rare game event causes them to end their turn early. So one of the only really interesting decision points of the game isn't really 
even a decision point that you have to make as a player. A lot of the NPC interactions even tell you where to go, so there goes that decision as well. I've tried the exploration and the player versus player modes of Destinies, and while the removal of the insanely short timer on the challenge mode is nice, the competitive game plays almost like a solo game on the same map. You may inadvertently advertise the location of a character or item that an opponent is looking for, but otherwise you're mostly wrapped up in your own narrative, trying to accomplish your goals before anyone else at the table does in a sort of race. There are some good things to like about Destinies. It's probably one of the cheapest and most accessible narrative games out there right now. The artwork is fantastic. It covers an interesting medieval theme. It plays quickly. And the app they made for the game is actually quite good. But stacked up to the greats like Seventh Continent and Mansions of Madness and the like, there wasn't really a lot here that drew me in. We're hoping to get another episode out this week before summer holidays kick in, so keep your podcatchers tuned to Of Dice and Men for more thoughts on this and other great board games we've been playing lately. Have a great week. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, or on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. Yes. And what is it that we're doing now, Jason? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesdays, and we've got two games to talk to you about this week. One will be very quick. We finish up our campaign of Zombicide 2nd Edition, Washington, ZC, and we got a game that I've been eagerly awaiting. I wasn't sure how Julie was going to feel about it. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, but we wanted to check it out anyway. It is the Power Rangers deck building game designed by Matt Hyra and published by Renegade Game Studios. Now, just to catch you up on Zombicide, it's published by Simon Games and Guillotine Games. The designers are Nicolas Raoult, Raphael Guiton, and Jean-Baptiste Lullier. I almost didn't say it, but decided to add it in. We've been talking about it just about, what, for like a minute or two every week? So let's be quick on Zombicide 2nd Edition, Washington, D.C. We finished the last mission, and overall, like the campaign, but geez, that last mission was a disappointment. And a I was going to say, do you really want to get into it? I would say... Um, if you're playing through all of the different missions, um, and you only have a little bit of time left for the last one, go ahead and do it. Because if you do like us and you wait to do the last one, uh, I think we waited, what, two weeks? Cause we figured it might like be- uh, a week and a half or something like that. The last mission before was a lot more epic and I get it, it's supposed to be a denouement, but uh, it just didn't work for us. We kind of sat down and beat it in about half hour and we're like, huh, yeah, that's it, it? It was, um... Disappointment's the word. Not that it was bad. It was just it was very easy. It didn't feel like a uh, an end to you know a seven mission run. It well, just ten mission epic campaign. So there you have it. I think that's enough about Washington D.C. Little anticlimactic for that last mission. So Power Rangers, the deck building. Guess game. what? We played some Power Rangers again. Jason, how do you manage to get Power Rangers to the table before anything else all the time? Well. In this case, it just made sense. We are trying to get either Madara or Sword and Sorcery to the table. And as this game can be played over the table, so we've got a nice vault in our table, for those wondering, it just made sense. And yeah, I, I wanted to check this out because I really wasn't sure how it was going to go. And there's a lot that I like about this game, but there's also a lot that I dislike about this game at the same time. Yeah, so, I mean, it was Power Rangers, so I rolled my eyes a little bit because it's like another Power Rangers game, and it's competitive, so I rolled my eyes at Jason again. I'm like, really? Another competitive game? But then he said deck building, and he said it should be quick, 
So I thought, yeah, maybe it won't be so bad. I'll put a spoiler in here and say, I know my opinions of things get tainted a little bit when I win. I'm that competitive. Uh, and in this case, I definitely will say it definitely had an impact because I won every game that we played. And I think that also had an opinion uh, an, uh, an impact for you as well because I think it altered your opinion a little bit. Uh, not exactly. There's there's stuff that I didn't like about the game after our first play. There was stuff I didn't like about our second play. Our second play was definitely the most balanced play. It's the one where I could actually see my path to uh, to victory and I made a big mistake. Uh, a large part of the game is gaining energy and shards and I had a... You attach different cards to your hero. Very cool. One of the things that I like. Uh, you got to acquire heroes from the Morphing Grid, which are a set of six cards, fairly standard for most deck building games. That didn't like as much. It gets a little wonky, but uh, in any case, I got this hero. I'd used the hero as I needed to to morph, which I thought was really cool. The uh, sort of teenager and scheming phases to the empowered and morph stages are awesome. But I held on through too long, and that just slowed down my deck and I just didn't get enough energy. And while I was ahead of you for a bit, you eventually caught up and surged past me. And that was really my own doing. Now, on the first game, it ran really, really long. And essentially, I was on the defensive. Julie had managed to get herself set up very offensively, and it was, it was nice for her. But I kept just not dying, which was not fun because I couldn't catch a break. There was never a chance for me to sort of swing the momentum in my direction. And the game just kept going and going I kept and saying, going. How did you regenerate again? How did you heal again? You're not dead yet. Yeah, so that was rather annoying because it just felt like it wasn't going anywhere. And then I would say in our last game, I... A couple of things happened that just slowed down the character that I picked. And then looking at the characters afterwards, I was Rita Repulsa. She was uh, the Yellow Ranger Trini. She just had a better setup to take me out. And I probably should have played the game entirely differently with Rita. And I might have stood a chance. But even then, just the way things went for her, uh, you got to discard and destroy a lot of your starting cards early. And then your engine just kind of went and I was I was gone. Like I could just tell she morphed. I was way behind. I looked at her and I said, you're going to win. And I had the same feeling from the moment she destroyed those four cards, uh, starter cards from her hand. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was necessarily that straight, uh, that that straight cut that I was going to beat you. I think. But uh, the momentum shifted when you destroyed the starter cards. It was going in your direction. Then when you morphed, I was too yeah, far it was behind. risky though because I didn't have a lot of energy for a while there, and, and I was a little worried I couldn't pick anything up. So. You know, there's advantages and disadvantages to getting rid of those cards. Yeah, you thin your deck, but I didn't have a lot left, and I thought, yeah, I could get stuck. Uh, had I been playing, you know, a little bit less aggressively, it probably would have taken longer to play. But in this case, this was our shortest game. It took us, you know, less than 40 minutes. So that's, you know, definitely interesting. The first game, like you say... But it's just... not fun, though, when it takes less than 40 minutes. That's a problem because one person's running away with the game. I don't know if I'm gonna if I know I'm gonna die. I'd rather get over. Being yeah, but then I'm your I'm kind of out of the game, and so we're we're talking about this now. But just to clarify, one of the biggest issues I think we both had with our other plays of the game is that this game is just too long. As a heads up game, it's too long. It's designed to be one v one, 
2v2 or 2v1. And I think there's some interesting elements if you do those 2v1 and 2v2. But in a 1v1 game, I mean, for those who watch our videos, we've got Red Rising behind us. And that takes us about 45 minutes to an hour. We could probably play about two games or one and a half games of Red Rising in the time it takes us for one game of Power Rangers. Yeah, I think the first game was probably too long. But, uh, you know, that's what happens with some deck builders. I will say, however, uh, and maybe we can sum up on that because we're getting close to our, our deadline. It, you know, I think the game is probably more fun uh, and at more thematic as well at more players. Uh, and I'll be interested to, to try it out. Yeah, I don't think this one's going anywhere. We want to try once again at more players. There's just some elements that you don't really get to play. And 1v1, like the, the Zords, the Megazord, we haven't seen it yet. Filling up the Master Layer hasn't happened yet. There's just a lot of mechanics that are locked behind that higher player count. So I know we ran long here, and I think that's uh, good enough for now. If you want to hear more of our thoughts on Power Rangers, the deck building game, it'll be coming out uh, well, the day after this. So what's next, Julie? Gotta remind everybody to... Keep playing games! Hello, I am Aaron Millage. And I'm Royce Coverley. <laughs> <laughs> we are definitely a board game. He told me podcast. that I had to go right away, that there couldn't be a pause between his name and my name, <laughs> and I got it right on. There was no wasted time there wow. whatsoever. Didn't even get through the, the intro. So we are definitely a board game podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except where we're not. And Royce is in a weird mood. And... I'm we're here. I don't think what? I'm in a weird mood. I think I'm in an excellent mood. Thank you very much. <laughs> He's in an excellent mood. I'm in a weird mood. Here we are. Uh, what you've been playing Wednesday. We're out of control, just like right out of the gate. And we're going to be talking about some games that we've been playing every day. Not Wednesday? Just Wednesday. Well, Wednesday? sometimes Wednesdays, no. yeah. Yeah. So, All right. what's your first one? What have you been playing, Aaron? I'm asking you. Who's on oh, first? Okay. I, uh, so, I've been playing a game that was a big surprise for me. I I didn't think I would like it. I bought it solely based on the title. It's (laughs) called The Key, Murder at Lucky Llama Land by Thomas Singh and Haba Games. And I got to say, it is an amazing deduction game. It is so much fun. I was shocked Grace loved it too. Like I didn't think I didn't think I would like it. I was sure she wouldn't like it. I bought it solely on the title, as I said. And it really is a great deduction game. You're taking all these clues. There's a little bit of a speed element, but the speed element is not the deciding factor. Mm -hmm. The person that finishes first is not always going to be the winner. In fact, if they finish first, there's a good chance they made a mistake somewhere along the line. But it's like a deduction game along the lines of like Clue or Sherlock 13 or something like that. Great game, really highly recommended. I think this might end up being my biggest surprise of 2021. And now the question I'm sure everyone is wondering, are there actually llamas? Sort of. Sort of. So there are three bad guys and they dress up in llama costumes to do their crimes. Wow. That is a great theme. It really is. No, it's amazing. It makes perfect sense when you read it. Yeah. Well, uh, Unlike you, I knew I was going to like my game because it's one of those Uwe Rosenberg games. 2018 Lookout Games, Patchwork, the perfect two-player game. I love polyomino-style games, and this one is no exception. Basically, you're choosing patches and paying for them with buttons and filling up your board. 
And as you fill up your board, you get more buttons to buy more things. And basically, it's sort of a race to the finish in a way, but more about whoever fills up their board the most wins because the more squares you have left of uncompleted board, you actually lose points. Very simple, very cool looking, very awesome. I love how the buttons keep like, you know, multiplying as you go. Great game, quick game, nice and easy, lots of fun. Can't really go wrong with Uve though, can you? Not at all. And I'm, I'm just curious because this was kind of his first uh, polyomino game. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you will feel like the it has been kind of replaced because I do, to be honest with you. I think there are, he's done better polyomino games since then. Yeah, it's very possible. I do have a couple in the closet I have not yet opened and uh, I guess we'll see. But Patrick right now remains a favorite for me and uh, no llamas. No llamas. That, that automatically takes it down to Mark. <laughs> uh, I'm going to quickly apologize for the opening today. We were out of control. But if you like, you know, people who are out of control, you might like our podcast. Definitely a board game podcast. If you want to check it out, basically, you can look it up uh, anywhere where podcasts live. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. There's all these places. We're everywhere. It's hard, it's hard to find us. And if you want to talk to us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at definitelyboard at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Board Definitely, Twitter at Board Definitely, if people are still doing that Twitter thing. And we have a guild on Board Game Geek called Definitely yeah. Board Game Podcast. You can find us there too. We're everywhere. It's almost impossible to not find us. Wouldn't you say, Royce? I think that they should all play the key murder at Lucky Llama Land. I, I agree. I think you should definitely <laughs> do that because if a game has llamas, you know it's going to be top notch, even if they're in costume. It's all. All good about the llama. Yeah. Llama pajama. Okay, I think we should end this now. (laughs) Good ideas. Say goodbye, Royce. Goodbye, Royce. Bye, everybody. My name is Jamie. And I'm Jeff. And we are from Foster the Meeple, a YouTube channel all about board games and board gamey things. You can find us on youtube.com slash Foster the Meeple. And of course, on all of social media at Foster the Meeple. Cool. Cool. We are here today to do our very first ever What You've Been Playing Wednesday to talk about the games that we played this past week. Yes. And we were very fortunate enough to go to our local boardroom game cafe to play quite a few games this past weekend. But we'd really like to talk about two of those games specifically. Yeah. And those two games are... Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation. From Fantasy Flight Games and... Biblios. From Yellow. 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 (laughs) Let's start off maybe by talking about Biblios. Sure. So Biblios is a super fun game in a very inconspicuous little box. Yes. It is all about being a librarian or building a library. Something to that effect. Something something to that effect. But essentially, this is an auction bidding card drafting hand management set Set collection collection, game. It goes in two phases. 
this, the first phase is called the gifting phase. And in that phase, active player is looking at a card, determining whether or not they want to keep it for their own hand, or they can give it to their counterpart or their other player, or mm -hmm. they can put it in the secret auction pile. And you're trying to get as many cards in your hand of the same color or the same set, because that's going to potentially allow you to score the most points at the end of the game if you have the most of that color. Mm -hmm. So that's phase one. You go through the whole deck. And then phase two is called the auction phase, where the cards that were put in the auction bidding pile are then revealed, and everybody has a chance to bid on those. So there's four dice, and you can manipulate the dice faces to essentially determine how much that color will be worth at the end of the game. And your set collection, depending on how many cards you have of that color, will determine whether or not you get that dice at the end of the game. There's also these cool cards that are put in there that allow you to manipulate the dice. So mm -hmm. anytime one of those cards comes up, you flip it right away and you can either increase or decrease one of the dice, possibly two of the dice mm -hmm. to try and either get yourself more points at the end of the game. Or if you know the color that your competitor is going for, you can definitely decrease the dice that you yeah. think they're going for. So as an example, in the game we played, I was going for mainly brown. Jeff was going for mainly blue. So every time I got to decrease a dice, I was definitely decreasing the blue dice just to up my advantage a little bit. Indeed. And I did just find what the actual theme was. You are an abbot of a medieval monastery competing oh, with other abbots to amass the greatest library of sacred books. It's thrilling. Cool. We had a lot of fun with this game. Yeah. Highly recommend. Of fun, yeah. Really good travel game. Small box. Definitely love this one. Can't wait to play it again. So that is Biblios from Yellow. And now moving into Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation from Fantasy Flight Games. Yeah. So we played this one because it's no longer in print. And we saw that this was on the, as Jamie mentioned, at our local friendly gaming store, was on the list of games they had in their library. So we decided to play it. It is is basically Stratego, but Lord of the Rings themed. There's bluffing, deduction, and kind of area movement. So one person plays as the Fellowship, the other plays as Sauron and his minions. The Fellowship is attempting to get Frodo to Mordor, and Sauron is trying to either to kill Frodo or um, three, I believe, characters to the Shire. In this game, it's very interesting because you can basically only move forwards. Some characters allowed you to manipulate that movement a little bit in order to attack and stuff. Each character has their own unique set of abilities, and you're just moving forward until an inevitable va uh, battle happens <laughs> and you kind of deduce who you think might be in the battle because again you cannot see the other players characters they're not facing you until the battle actually happens and then you lay down cards after you determine who's in the battle you can then play cards to kind of manipulate a victory condition and then once you are defeated your character is removed from the game mm -hmm. so it's very um if you played stratego we haven't but if you've played stratego from what i can gather it's pretty much that game just with the Lord of the Ring, uh, Lord of the Rings theme, mm -hmm. and we had a ton of fun playing it. The board definitely was well a loved, well loved piece of cardboard. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do hope they do a reprint of this game because I do think it's something we would definitely add to our collection. Really, really enjoyed that one. That's Lord of the Rings: The Confrontation. Yes, I love this game because every character has their own special ability, and like Jeff mentioned, you don't know who you're fighting against, and that 
character's ability may be that they automatically kill mm-hmm. the player Very that you're attacking Very asymmetrical with. player abilities, that's yes, for sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And super thematic. It's just a lot of fun. And this very was- Very simple. Yeah, very simple. And it only takes 20 minutes to play. So if you know somebody with a copy of this game or you have a local board game cafe that you can go to, I don't or imagine- you have big bucks. Or you got millions of dollars to buy this buy game this. on eBay. Yeah. Highly, highly recommended. It was so much fun. And I'm excited to potentially play it again yeah, someday. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely something we'll probably play again when we go back. Yeah. For sure. So those are the games that we have played in this past week. Once again, it's Jeff and Jamie from Foster the Meeple, and you can find us at youtube.com slash Foster the Meeple or on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Foster the Meeple. We would love for you to come and join us to talk about board games and board gamey things. Yeah, and thank you to Bridge City Board Gamers for having us on. Yeah, this is exciting, and hopefully you'll be hearing our voices uh, every week. Yeah, and less awkward as we move forward. Perhaps. I guess time will tell. (laughs) No promises. No promises. Thanks for listening. (laughs) We'll be back again another day. Later days. Later days. Hey folks, I'm Ryan of Bridge City Board Gamers, and I'm one-third of the weekly podcast Cardboard Conjecture, where we offer our opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. You can find us active on Twitter and Instagram. Just follow us at BC Board Gamers. Okay, so if you're an avid listener of the Cardboard Conjecture podcast, you would know that I am a huge fan of the Exit the Game series. It even made my top 20 games of all time. Uh, my wife and I, we've played them all. Uh, so then we've recently got the newest one, um, The Deserted Lighthouse, which uh, they're starting to do is something a little bit new with the Exit the Games because, you know, they need to kind of start doing some things new with the, with the Exit the Games. So this one incorporates jigsaw puzzles as part of the puzzle solving process, which I thought was really, really cool and really, really neat. Now, My wife and I are pretty, really, you know, pretty good at these Exit the Games. And this one kicked our butts. And I'm thinking that's because they started introducing some things new to the game, which is especially the jigsaw puzzles. Now, a typical Exit the Game will probably be able to be completed within about one hour. Now, with the added time of actually having to put together a jigsaw puzzle, oh, sorry, four 88-piece jigsaw puzzles is going to add on to the experience. So they're advertising probably about a closer to two-hour time frame. Let's put a pin in that a little bit. So I'm going to be kind of a little bit spoilerish. Um, so just a, just a heads up on this, because I have to kind of describe a couple things that happened in my game experience in order to give you my, my, my full thoughts of this new Exit of the Game series. So they've gotten rid of the card clue system and the little paper books that you've gotten. And that's all being replaced with now these new, the, the, well, with the puzzles. So you have to assemble the puzzles. Now, this is where it kind of gets a little bit tricky because you're assembling an 88-piece jigsaw puzzle and you have no idea what it's actually supposed to look like. So that's a pretty big challenge in itself. Plus, they've done a really good job of most of the edges of the jigsaw puzzle pieces don't really bleed into another jigsaw piece, so you don't have really a good clue of what is connecting to what at any given time. 
on that note, the uh, all the clues are now, once you've assembled the jigsaw puzzle, all the clues are there. And these jigsaw puzzle pieces are actually really quite tiny. And for uh, we found it that it was really hard to kind of see and make out most of the most of the clues. So that, that was kind of a detriment to this thing. Added, now that they've introduced this new system with the jigsaw puzzles, you they now introduce some things of, you know, having to manipulate the jigsaw puzzles, which we didn't think was actually going to be um, going to be a thing when actually solving the puzzles. Um, usually it's just kind of like, you know, you have to fold papers and stuff like that. But this one actually had to actually have to physically alter the puzzles in some of the cases, which that kind of blew our minds. Uh, we just thought if you put together a puzzle, it's going to be that. Now, this one did take us quite a bit longer than your typical. Now, it said to advertise it about a two-hour play length. Well, after about two hours, we found ourselves only about halfway through the, um, the experience. It actually took us closer to four hours to complete the deserted lighthouse. We don't like using a lot of hints and clues, and trying to, so we try to figure things out. So after it's all said and done, we started using some more clues more frequently just because we knew we weren't going to get a good score anyways. We usually typically score like a 7 or an 8. This one we scored a 2. So uh, take that one. Take that for what it is. So yeah, the Deserted Lighthouse, it, it did bring some cool and interesting things to the Exit the Game series. I don't think that this one was a great entry into this into this system if you want if they wanted people to buy into it um we're looking forward to trying out the next one which is called the sacred temple it also incorporates the jigsaw puzzles hopefully that one maybe is implemented a little bit um uh you know better but uh we're still it's not distracting us from the exit the game series at all we did we're glad that they're introducing us something new I just think that the Deserted Lighthouse could have been a little bit better. The clues or the um, instructions on how to do certain puzzles could have been a little bit smoother and not left up to some ambiguities. So, yeah, so that's what I was, that's what we uh, just finished playing this past weekend. I'm Ryan of the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast, and you can make sure you check us out on iTunes and Twitter at BC Board Gamers. Okay, folks. It's been a blast. That's what I've been playing on Wednesdays. Ciao. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your Cardboard Concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. You can find me at TabletopBellhop.com and all over the internet and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. If you've got a gaming or game night question for me to answer, you can send that to questions at TabletopBellhop.com or visit the webpage and click on Ask the Bellhop. Of course, the question I'm answering today is, what you've been playing this past week? So last week for me was a great week gaming-wise. A big part of that is that my podcast co-host Sean was in town for his grandfather's 100th birthday. Happy birthday, Grandpa Stevens. Now, Sean doesn't like driving down here to Windsor and back home on the same day, so after the block party that was held for his grandfather, he headed over here where we played some games before he crashed for the night and headed home in the morning. 
Now, the first game we played was Riff Raff, which was actually a game I bought a couple of hours before he showed up. I picked this up off of a local friend who's been purging his collection due to lack of space for his games. Now, Riff Raff is one of the most notorious dexterity games, and my collection of balancing, stacking, and flipping games just felt incomplete without it. Now, after fighting for a bit to get the game set up, Sean and I played one round. Now, if you haven't played it and dig dexterity games, you really need to check out Riff Raff at some point. This game comes from Zoc and is thus mostly wood, with the main component being a wooden ship that's set up on a gimbal, a very loose gimbal. Each turn you play cards from a set hand to determine not only what order you will place items onto this wobbly ship, but where you will place them, either on one of the four deck spots or on one side of one of the three masts. You have a set of different shaped and weighted objects in front of you, and the winner is the first one to play all of their stuff. The thing is, this ship is very wobbly, and a big part of this game, in addition to testing your balancing skills, is the ability to catch anything that happens to fall off the ship once you're playing. Now, anything caught in this way is removed from the game, whereas anything that falls goes back into your supply to try to get out, and again, you have to empty your supply to win. Now, this game is as much of a pain to assemble as I remember, and the ship is just as woobly-wobbly as I remember. This is not an easy dexterity game at all, but it is a ton of fun and contains a number of tactical elements driven mostly by the card play. There's even a semi-co-op aspect of the game, as if players don't work together to add some weight to the bottom of the ship, no one, none of the players are going to be able to place anything on those masts. Now that was Riff Raff. <clears throat> so due to the fact my co-host lives three hours up to 401, and we don't actually get the game together as often as we like, we actually have a file on our Google Drive folder that we use for our podcast called the Games Sean Must Playlist. So after finishing off Riff Raff, this is what we broke out to see what to play next. Now the top game on that list was Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy. In the past few years since starting the show, we've discovered that Sean definitely has a thing for sci-fi themed games, with his all-time favorite being Pulsar 2849. Up until this point, though, Sean hadn't really played any of the well-known epic 4X sci-fi games, and Eclipse is my favorite of those. So we set up and played a three-player game. Sean played the Blue Humans, I played the Yellow Aliens, and Deanna took on the role of the White Aliens. Sorry, I don't remember the names of the different species in the game. Now, I'm always impressed to see just how different the factions in Eclipse play. Our game went pretty quick, despite Sean not knowing the rules at all, and me still not being too familiar with the second edition. This was actually only the second time I got my Kickstarter copy to the table. Now, Sean did like it a lot, but did feel the need to play further games. There is a lot of things to take in in that game, and there were mechanics he didn't quite grasp early in the game that would have changed how he played. As it was, though, he did come in second place. Deanna really had a hard time with the White Aliens and their strategy. Personally, I loved it. I loved the first edition of Eclipse, and this new Second Dawn for the Galaxy version is the same but better, in my opinion. Better balanced, with way better components, and what I actually appreciate the most are the inserts that make setting up, managing things while playing, and tearing down the game so much easier. Now, the next game in the Sean Must playlist was Quacks of Quedlinburg. I set up a quick game using the first pages of all the ingredient books, and we played through a rather quick round. Now, by now, everyone knows just how good this Push Your Luck potion building game is. You've heard lots of people talking about it, and I've even shared my growing joy for it right here on this podcast. What really made an impression on Sean, though, was how friendly the game was. Here was a board game in which there wasn't any direct competition, but it wasn't cooperative. What I hadn't realized in all the games that I've shown Sean and the games he's discovered on his own, they have all been competitive games in some way, with some form of direct interplayer conflict. 
Like even Funfair, which is a happy game about building theme parks, does involve a lot of hate drafting and making sure your opponents don't get the things they need. So he was very surprised by Quacks of Quedlinburg, and surprised in a good way. It seems we found a new type of game Sean might dig, other than deck builders and sci-fi games. So looking forward to the next time he's in town, I think I'm going to try to find some more multiplayer solitaire-style games where everyone does their own things and doesn't get in the way of each other. Now, after the Quacks of Quedlinburg, we finished off the night with a game of Space Base. Now, one of Sean's all-time favorite games is Valeria Card Kingdoms, and like me, he very much has been wanting to try Space Base to see how it compares, since everyone seems to want to compare those two games. Now, our game was short, with Deanna getting some lucky rolls and card buys early in the game that led to a bit of a runaway leader problem. Thankfully, this didn't ruin the game for Sean, as he saw it was a bit of a fluke. Now, overall, it was a good learning game, and Sean's looking forward to playing again. Now, we've since learned there is a version of Space Base on Tabletop Simulator, and we're planning on giving that a shot in the future. As for how Space Base compares to Valeria Card Kingdoms, I'm not going to get into that here. Instead, I'm going to point you over to the blog, where I just published my Space Base review on Monday. And at the bottom of that, I take the time to compare not only Space Base, but to Valeria, but also to Machi Koro. So that's it for the games I played with Sean. I have to say it was great sitting down at a table with someone who wasn't part of my immediate family again, and getting to spend time with my best friend in person. Now, besides playing games with Sean, I also introduced both my girls to Quacks of Quedlinburg, which I expected them to love, and they just didn't. While they both enjoyed the game, they just didn't love it. And I think a big part of this is the amount of information presented to a new player at the start of the game. There are a lot of ingredients laid out on the table, and everyone is different. This can be a lot to take in for a new player. Now, the game does help a bit by slowly introducing new ingredients as the game goes on, but it's just not slow enough. You had one in the second and one in the third round, so it just, the ramp up's a little too quick. I think if I had to reteach this, or if I ever have to teach this game to kids again, or someone who's new to gaming, I think I would limit it to maybe three or four ingredients, and then play like a three or four game round, then play another with three or four different ingredients in a four game round, then put everything together for a full game. Now, finally, Sean, Deanna, and I have started playing hardback on Board Game Arena. We're actually playing lots of stuff on Board Game Arena, I just don't usually highlight them here, including ongoing games of Seven Wonders, Race for the Galaxy, Terra Mystica, and Rallyman GT. But Hardback is new, and I have to say I wanted to comment on the interface for this one. So Hardback, if you don't know it, is a deck-building word game where you get a hand of letters, you use those to spell a word, and get points and money based on the cards you use. Now, money can be used to buy new word cards or ink. Ink lets you draw additional cards at the start of the round to build bigger words. It features a cool combat mechanic that reminds me of Star Realms, where you play cards from the same book family to get you bonuses. Now, one of the rules in the physical game is that when your turn is done, you're expected to start trying to figure out what word you're going to spell for the next round. This includes spending ink and converting cards to wild cards. This works great to speed up the game in person. What's odd on Board Game Arena is that it attempts to simulate this, expecting you to finish building your word, finish your turn, and then keep playing. But due to the fact we're playing turn-based and we're all just in the habit of hitting next game or moving on to something else after finishing a turn, this has been a bit of a problem. Like, normally it's not a problem when you play a game on Board Game Arena. You just jump out and come back at where you are. But on hardback, they try to help by putting your spelled word out on the table for you. Except in most cases, you haven't actually spelled a word yet. So at first, this was very annoying, uh, especially when we thought you had to pick up your hands and put them back, or your cards and put them back in your hand and then play them again. But now that we know and understand what's going on, we're getting more used to it. So that's it for this week. Those are the games that hit my table, both physical and digital. Find lots more gaming content at tabletopbellhop.com. 
And be sure to check out the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, which we record live Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on Twitch at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop, with edited episodes showing up on your podcatchers early Tuesday mornings. Also be sure to join us for Sunday Brunch with the Bellhop. That's another live show on Sundays at noon. This is an unscripted show where I just chat with my best friend about whatever topic is of interest to us at the time. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop. Good day and game on. Hello everybody, it's Rob and Anna-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast, and this week we're going to talk about two games. Uh, the first game we're going to talk about is a game that I got to play and not Anna-Marie this Lucky. week. Yeah. <laughs> I got to, for the first time, go to a friend's house to play a game um, since, I believe, the early fall of last year, October or something like that, and I went over to my friend Scott's house to play with his cousin Matt and our good friend Brendan, and we got to play... Dominant Species Marine. So this is a new edition of Dominant Species. Uh, this is uh, designed by Chad Jensen, art by Chad Jensen, and published by GMT Games. Uh, two to four players, 90 to 150 minutes. Um, so this game is very, very much Dominant Species, but it is very, very different at the same time. So when I first heard we were going to be playing this, I thought it was going to be roughly the same game, just with the Marine theme kind of like prehistoric kind of marine uh life duking it out um but it was quite different i mean it operated very similarly but some of the mechanics they flipped on their heads so uh in in the original dominant species you uh kind of lay out all your your choices for the round um in in you go around the table laying down your choices and then you fire them from top to bottom Uh, but in this one you're actually just picking your action and you're doing it right when you pick it but wherever you choose an action, you'll only be able to choose an action that's on the same level of the one that you chose or beneath it. So you, the ones that are above the action that you chose are now off the, off the table until you retrieve your, your pawns and start again. So it's, it's really, really quite different, um, although feeling very, very much dominant species. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It surprised me a lot. And... Um, yeah, I like it just about the same as the other one. I have to, I have to play this one a little bit more, but it was really, really good. I haven't even played the first Dominant Species or the I original, know, and I, I uh, you said how much you really like that one. So, yeah. and we don't even have it. Only Scott has. Well, he's got both now. So, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to go play with Scott and play some more of both. But yeah, that's enough about Dominant Species because. You and I, Anna-Marie, have been playing another great game. Yes. What is that? We have been playing Mr. Jack, designed by Bruno Catala and Ludovic Moblanc, and art by Piero, and published by Hurricane. Yes. Mr. Jack. This game, um, we've been wanting for a long time. Uh, We've seen Z Garcia from the Dice Tower talk about this you know, uh, at length, yeah, yeah, and how much he loves it. A bunch of different lists. And we are very, yeah, we're very on uh, the same lav- wavelength when it comes to kind of the uh, lower or the easier kind of games. I guess third games, uh, we kind of like on the same Definitely. kind of thing as Z does. So we, whenever he says he likes something, we generally check it out. But this one I got for a Father's Day gift, and we've been playing it um, 
a lot this week, and I love it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's an so amazing two-player game. Yeah. So thematically, you one of you takes the role of a detective, and the other one takes play uh, takes the role of Jack, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper, is who we're talking about here. But they call him Mister Jack to yeah. kind of make it a little bit lighter, so it doesn't, you know. Take it's not so well, much serial killery. On the know. same same like wavelength that we played with our oldest son, and he doesn't know anything about Jack no. the Ripper, but he we just call him Mister Jack, and yeah, all you're doing is trying to find him. So there's like nothing else is in the game about that. It's just yeah, no, that which is great because yeah, yeah like you said, he was able to play it. And we're able to just call him Mister Jack, it. and he yeah. just refers to him as Mister Jack, having no clue who that what is, is going on, who they're referring yeah. to. But the way the game operates, do you want to talk about it? Uh, how sure. it operates? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, you have, uh, I think, eight characters. There are eight yes. characters in total in the game. Um, one of them will be Mr. Jack. That uh, character changes every game because it's picked at random. Um, right, the Mr. Jack player draws a random uh, tile with yeah. that'll give him his secret identity. There are two sets of eight tiles. Yeah. Um, we'll say red and green. <laughs> so the red ones uh, are the ones that Mr. Jack will just pick from to choose who he is that that game the green ones are all eight characters mm-hmm. um you basically you have a board that gets laid out there's a map in the instructions to show how you place everything all the characters get placed in certain spots you have um lights like lampposts that are placed that are lit up you have um sewers uh, or manholes i guess manholes that have either covers on them or not uh and um and then you police barricades as well oh yeah police yeah. barricades is perfect yep yeah. And then each character has a unique ability. So um, you lay out four of the eight uh, character cards, and they're nice, thick cardboard components are really nice. Yes, very nice, yeah. And uh, yeah, you lay out the four character, four of the character cards at random, and then uh, the inspector uh, or the investigator chooses one, uh, one of the characters, and gets to play, uh, move that character, and then do their ability. And then Mr. Jack goes, and he picks two characters and then the inspector will go again and do the last one yeah so um and then so that's half of the characters have gone and then after you've done that um every time a character is beside one of the lampposts uh they you're on a little round tile that flips um forward and backwards so on the on the one side it's lit up and their color their face is colored um on the other side it's black and white and that side is up when you're not near a lamp or lamppost so um, yeah, and you just basically, at the end of, say, those first four characters, um, Mr. Jack will tell whether um, whether he's illuminated or not illuminated. And so then the inspector gets to kind of suss out who Mr. Jack is and start to put some pieces together. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, the whole, the whole uh, game is the detective just trying to piece it together, little clue by little clue. The biggest one being the light, because at the end of each round, um, if there's a character near a lamppost... Yeah, you can kind of cut things in half because if four of the if four of the characters are you know by lamppost and four aren't, and Mister Jack says that he is not illuminated, then you can cut out four characters right away. And at the end of each round, you're taking away a lamp a lamppost, <laughs> so you have less and less chance of knowing that. Yes. So yeah, the lampposts are quietly or yeah slowly dying out, and yeah. there's less and less light, so that that uh, mechanism leaves you less and less chance of figuring it out. 
and Mr. Jack will win if he escapes through one of the four corners on the map, yep. or if he lasts all eight or ten rounds or whatever it is, but that's never happened to us. Or if the inspector falsely accuses someone. Yes, and all the inspector has to do to accuse someone is take one of the characters and land it on top of another character. Who they think who is they Mr. Think Jack. Is that, if that's the one they think, yeah. and they land on it and say yes or no, and if they're right, they win. If they're wrong, Mr. Jack wins. Yeah. But yeah, Mr. Jack. It's so much fun. Oh, it's, it's so nice, good. It's a nice, quick game. It's Yeah, it's really, well, it can be really quick. If, if you're yeah. lucky enough, you can uh, escape or catch him pretty quickly. But, I mean, we can play over and over and over again. Love the game. Definitely love uh, the game. But we got to run. Uh, yeah. This has been Robin and Anne-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon, and we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm John. And we're... Friday Night Games! You can find us on Instagram at Friday Night Games underscore official, Twitter at Friday Night GMS, and on our website at FridayNight.Games. All right, so what you been playing Wednesday? And we're here to talk about a new game by 25th Century Games, Common, which has been designed by the legendary Reiner Knizia. And uh, it's a re-implementation of the original game from 1993. Yeah, so King Tut has died. And you, womp womp. and you play as clergy sailing up the Nile to collect artifacts to place into the tomb. You collect sets of artifacts to score the amount of points equal to the set number on the pieces on the board, which are scored when all the pieces leave the board. Second place of the collection gets half of those points. Points earned goes towards cleansing your spirit to be rewarded the high priest of the game. All the pieces are randomly lined up in a single file, which meander like the Nile River. Ooh. All lines end at the end of the river. That made no sense. <laughs> the line lines up, and then it kind of ends at this, like, mummy's tomb, and that is at the end of the river. You can move forward as many spaces as you like, um, starting at the very end of the river, or you can move backwards one space as long as there is a tile there. When you land on a tile, you immediately collect it or do the god power. Once the furthest player back moves forward, any pieces behind that player is sent straight to the underworld. There are five different god idol power tiles. They don't score points, but they do things like switch the tile you currently have with a selected underworld tile, etc., etc., etc. And once all the tiles of a set are removed from the Nile, those tiles are scored immediately. To win, be the first player to get a set amount of points determined by the player count. Nice. So what'd you like, uh, John? Come on, tell me. Uh, you know what? The box is orange. Oh, you love orange? And that's that, that's my favorite color. Oh, so, nice. it, you know, I, yeah. I opened it up. It was it was quite nice. Um, the game was, like, pretty quick and easy to learn and set up. I mean, I think I taught it to you guys in, like, five minutes. Yeah, I and think it was uh, like a true classic board game, which makes sense because it's from 1993. It was super easy to play. There's very, uh, I, I put, I note, I noted very minimal rules. I think there was, uh, the rules <laughs> weren't that easy, but it was simple enough to understand once you got it. Right, um, and I figure 
you know, this kind of goes to what I like, what I don't like. Uh, there's different strategies, and I was just trying to figure out what mine should be. Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I should just go for, like, one set of tiles or keep collecting to try to get some of those second place points as well. I just, I don't know, it was in my head of the whole game, I think. Yeah, I think I think this game definitely warrants more than one playthrough. I think you need to play mm -hmm. it a bunch of times, which is actually really cool because uh, it's very easy to set up. And I kind of, I actually kind of wish we did play it uh, when we played it. I, I wish we played it more. We played it once, but I wish we played it more. Right. Um, and when I and when I took it, when I played the game, I actually took the hard path. I started collecting these rings that actually drop your points, but if you collect the most of them, you get uh, more points at the end of the game. So. And I almost won with that strategy. <laughs> yeah, it was it was working out well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think uh, we played with our friend Grabka, and he uh, I think he had a pretty good strategy. I think he was just kind of collecting things. He's collecting everything, and he's getting a yeah. lot of second second places, which was good, right? And uh, when he was the player that was behind, he was like slowly just picking up tiles instead of you know sending them to the underworld, right? Where I was like jumping forward, <laughs> right, <laughs> without a strategy. <laughs> So what uh, did, is there anything? Well, oh, I want to ask you, what didn't you like? Um, like I said before, you know, hard to think of what strategy I wanted to use. Um, other than that, I mean, it was it, it's it, the artwork's kind of cool for like how small I guess small of a game it is. You know, they put a lot of thought into um, what everything looks like, and the uh, the box itself is the scorekeeper. And the tomb of King Tut as well, uh, which was pretty cool. So there's really nothing much I didn't like about the game. Yeah, the um, that like tomb of uh, King Tut, uh, it actually photographs really well. Um, I'll post that sometime on our Twitter account. But man, it is a beautiful picture I took of that. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, honestly, this game, I actually liked all of it. Uh, it was so simple. And it's like for $25 price tag, it's pretty good for everyone to play. And I can honestly recommend it to everybody. So really, there wasn't much to not like about it. And the fact that it kind of stands the test of time, like we played it uh, just the other day. and It's from 1993. And it's still a great game. So good right. job. Awesome. Uh, how did we play it wrong? Nothing, suckers. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> play. Yeah, we must be getting real good at playing board games. Finally. <laughs> yeah, finally. It only took us, uh, I mean, two years of, of this podcast, but, um, you know, six years of playing games together frequently every weekend. Nice. Yeah. Take that. We're the best. <laughs> all right uh, i'm john and i'm matt we're friday night games don't forget you can check us out on instagram at friday night games underscore official twitter at friday night gms tiktok at friday night games and our website friday night dot games see hey, you later hey, wait no i'm gonna plug us real quick hey just so you know this coming up uh this coming week on our podcast on friday we have last board game standing and bridge city board gamers dice and dragons are on that too so definitely check that out See ya. Yes, we uh, we are we are picking the best game of 2020 and it's amazing. So check it out. Hey there, it's Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. 
And I'd like to talk about two games that I've played this week. Uh, one of which was with a good friend of mine that I've known since university. And we're both, uh, we both went to university to study education, become teachers. He's a history teacher. I'm a social studies teacher um, and history. And uh, so, and he's also the one responsible for getting me into uh, lacrosse and being very successful at it too. So when he has an idea, I usually go straight forward. So he had the idea of let's play some, uh, um, you know, history board games, military board games. So the first one I showed him was Undaunted Normandy, uh, designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. And, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm having so much fun with this game. This is such a great, uh, um, abstraction i would guess uh, of, a, of a military game but what i think we liked the most about it was the authenticity of uh the the historical uh, i i guess scenarios yeah and um and uh both uh both al and i loved the um the connection the empath the empathetic connection in the cards where the the names of the soldiers are identified on on the cards and there's it's not just a re, you know a repetition thing there's every card has a different name as far as we recognize so uh that appreciation was there because for us as uh, and we're both teachers right so for us it was uh demonstrated the level of research that went into this and if so the level of research the passion connected to the project so uh yeah we're having so much fun exploring this just so you know it's a deck building uh, game with uh, multi-use card uh, actions on the cards, and uh, you you have scouts, you have riflemen, you have uh, squad leaders, um, and these cards, of course, all are are unique as to the to the um, identification of the card. You know, scout rifleman, um, and uh, you the scenarios that are presented are scenarios that um, are are taken right from. Uh, the the history books right so we both were 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 psyched about that and uh yeah so that was uh that was uh undaunted normandy and uh, the other one i played was with daniel it was a great memory game it was wizardry to the power of three and i think it was a, a a spiel pegasus spiel and uh it's a six and up so if there's any any uh uh you know, moms or dads out there that want to get your kids into board games. This was really good. It used uh, memory as your mechanism. Uh, it had dice rolling to generate uh, um, the requirements of what you're trying to remember in the positions. And to 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 round about this, you are are three little um, uh, uh, um, students studying wizardry, and you're out of the castle, and you're down this down the road to the a uh, uh, little market after uh, you know after the the doors are closed in the castle and the uh, I would say the guardian is a ghost that is about to catch you out of the castle and you race back and uh, you roll three dice and these three dice represent um, uh, symbols and on the outside of the boards are these round tiles that are forest tiles and I believe there's about 15 or 16 and they match the symbols on the dice and yes lo and behold it's a memory game, so at the beginning of the game, each person reveals two, uh, and uh, it's it's cooperative. So you kind of memorize the uh, uh, what the symbol is and the position, put it down, roll the dice, and the dice have each of the symbols. And when you match the symbol with the die, that is a movement point. And after uh, a turn, 
then the ghost gets to have a turn. And on the board, it designates how many movement uh, um, uh, powers, I guess, the ghost has. So it's it's fun. And uh, trust me, the uh, uh, everyone is on an even, even level when it comes to memory. So yeah, I uh, he kicked my butt with a lot of it. So good on him. Good on Daniel. So that's what I've been playing. Um, uh, I would always like to encourage everybody to check out the links to the content creators of the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast because, man, do they have some great segments, and I'm so proud of what we put together each week. So uh, that being said, thank you to them for uh, the collaboration and contributions, and thank you to you for listening. And uh, that being said, take care out there and keep your stick on the ice, eh? Go Habs. If you like the content that we produce and the type of show we're creating, please leave a happy rating on iTunes or the podcast platform that you use. This would be such a great gift and it would help make it easier for others to find us when they search for board game podcasts. This episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesday has been brought to you by Cardboard Conjecture, where two months ago it was minus 30. Today, it's plus 30. Oh,